Welcome to the intersection of Black culture and horticulture with your girl, Cola B. Talking. And guess what, y'all? We Black in the Garden. Hey, Soil Cousins, welcome back to part two of the Black and Lit series. And it is a series because there will be several more conversations with authors centering a plant or agricultural horticultural theme. Looking forward to that. So definitely stay tuned for that. I'm Cola be talking in case I didn't already say it. I just be coming in hot sometimes. That's all that is. But here we are back for part two. Like I said, black and lit. You get it, right? Literature, right? Black? (laughs) Just trust me. So we started out with the part one of the conversation with Natalie Bazil. And there's so much to touch on. I really wish that I could have asked all the questions that I wanted to ask. I mean, I have a lot of very detailed questions, obviously, about the Queen Sugar universe. But, you know, there's certain questions that even Natalie can't answer, considering the television aspect being not something that um, she has control over. But she wrote the novel, though. So that is where it was birthed. And of course, there is We Are Each Other's Harvest, which is an anthology of the stories and experiences of Black farmers. And uh, she gets into a lot. And there is the thing that I love most about that particular book is that you can read it in any order. It's not like a linear story. So it's a really, I I like doing that. I like to just get into like a little uh, essay or short story or you know how anthologies are. They're a collection of stories and experiences and stories, essentially. And so getting into the anthology uh, was definitely every single thing that I read on every page. There is information. There is wisdom. There is knowledge. There is a feeling of something kindred, you know, soil cousins, right? So We Are Each Other's Harvest is something that we discussed, obviously, as well as Queen Sugar, to the best of my ability. Until we meet again, I am very certain that we will have more conversations with Natalie and, of course, in the spirit of Black and Lit with other authors. So stay tuned for that. Hope that y'all are feeling well. You didn't think I wasn't going to check on you. So, like, let's just take a deep breath. Because, you know, I get it. It's a podcast. You came to listen. I get that. But sometimes I got to breathe my damn self. So let's just be human together right quick. But yeah, Soil Cousins, I hope that whatever you grow in or nurturing or planning on putting into the soil is an opportunity for you to learn something. And I had to say it that way because... I want to make sure that I emphasize that every decision that we make provides an opportunity. And so everything that happens provides an opportunity, right? So when we grow something and it goes how we want it to go, you know, best case scenario, that is an opportunity to celebrate having done something or having accomplished something 
that you feel satisfied with or excited about. Boom, that's one side of it. On the other side, if it doesn't go the way that you want it to go or the way that you plan for it to go, you know, sometimes the tomatoes just don't be hitting. Sometimes plants die. Damn. But the opportunity is there to learn something from that experience to determine, should I try that again? You know, maybe that's just not for me. Maybe I done tried a bunch of times. I don't know if I want to keep at this. You know what I'm saying? Try, try again. I would encourage that, but you get what I mean. Uh, Maybe there's something that could be tweaked. You know, it's all an experiment anyway. So it's an opportunity to learn something. That's what I mean when I say gems. Get you some. All right. So before we get into this episode or part two of the episode, rather, let's talk about what support looks like. First of all, once again and forever again, thank you to everybody who donated to my fundraiser, had to take care of some things, had to just go ahead and put the ask out into the community and the community answered Shout out to the Soil Cousins who have donated. That link is in the show notes. So you certainly have the opportunity to donate if you still feel compelled to do so. Uh, I also have a cash app. I'm pretty sure that's in the show notes. Hashtag Black in the Garden, I guess. I don't know. But look, support, to be more specific, is how we keep the podcast functioning, in motion, taking care of all of these little costs that come up or big costs that come up with all of the elements that are necessary in order to run a production. You know, we all like well put together productions, TV shows, movies, you know, stage performances. We enjoy when it's when it comes together well, when it makes us feel good, when it resounds with us. Um, but when we really are conscious of all the effort and energy that goes into it and resources, then we can understand the value that it has. So a great way for you to be able to to indicate that you appreciate the value mm -hmm, is to show your support by becoming a patron, by sending me a cute little cash app donation, however you feel. Or you can still put in on the fundraiser. Link is in the show notes. I'd be so used to saying link is in the bio, but everything that you need is in, <clears throat> excuse me, is in the show notes. So take a look at that. Consider how you can support. Monetary is great. Sharing just as great, if not greater, because everybody needs to know that they are soil cousin and everybody needs to get this blessing that is Black in the Garden. Your, uh, favorite podcast at the intersection of Black culture and decolonizing horticulture, because that's what we get ready to do. So thank y'all so much for your support. Thanks for tuning in. Get into this conversation. What do you believe that the modern day African-American relationship would be like to the land if we had not come here under those circumstances? Have you ever thought about it? If we'd not come here under these circumstances. If we had like, come here like of our own volition. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's leave slavery out altogether. Yeah. And say that was not a part of the equation. Can you imagine that world in, in any way? See, here's the thing. That's half the question, right? Ooh. That's only half of it. Wow. What our relationship would be. 
Yes. That we have to also factor in what would the behavior have been of the people who were trying to keep us off the land. You see, because that, that question assumes that we would have had equal access. It does. I can imagine that question, but it kind of romanticized, I guess. Well, I don't want to say that. I mean, I think it would have been totally different. Think about the relationship that indigenous people have to the land, Mm -hmm. which is more holistic, right? Absolutely. It's not about ownership. It's about stewardship. It's about being in conversation and communion with the planet, with the earth. Yes. I would like to think that that's what our experience would have been had these other Mm. barriers not been in place, that we would have had a communal relationship with the soil, that we would have only taken what we need, Yeah, that we would, however our society was arranged, that it was in harmony Mm -hmm. with the earth. That's what I would like to think it would have been, that we would be, today we would be at peace, it would be that much closer to freedom, you know, yes. if we had never been enslaved, I guess. Yes. I don't know. Wow. I need to sit with that question. And Soil Cousins, I invite y'all to even pause this if, if you need to. I do that with podcasts all the mm-hmm. time. I'd be like, that was kind of deep. <laughs> I need to sit with this. Yeah. All right. So I would encourage you to take some time to think about how this land would be different, how this yeah. country would be different. So many things would We can't say what it would look like, but we just know it would be different. So that's the answer. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. But going back to, I'm thinking about the lineage, the heritage Mm -hmm. that you mentioned with your family gardening and everything like that. Right. And so I was fortunate to have a conversation recently with my father for our Father's Day episode. And he told me about his experience growing up as a young boy in uh, rural Georgia and about his father. One of the questions I made sure to ask him was, did you want to be a farmer? And he was like, hell no. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's too much work. And it was like for nothing. He's basing that on the experience that he saw his father have. Yeah. Where his father was basically cheated. His father never got to own. And so let me tell you, it was a little bit creepy because it reminded me of the story I read in... We Are Each Other's Harvest, where there was one of the farmers, because, you know, of course, you talk to many Black farmers. I know he indicated it was the one whose father's leg got amputated and then his other leg got amputated. Oh, I think that was Stanley Nelson. I mean, Stanley Hughes. I, think I don't Stanley remember Hughes. the exact name, y'all. Forgive yeah, I think me, that was Stanley Hughes. Yeah. All the more reason to read it yourself. Yeah. Obviously, <laughs> We Are Each Other's Harvest. Favorite bookshop, go get it. But there were so many similarities between it down to the diabetes and the leg getting caught off, cut off. And it made me think about my great grandmother. And I grew up with her living in our house and her legs had been amputated. Just Mm -hmm. the commonality of the stories and like the discrimination and the unfairness of it all. And just noticing it was so great for me to immerse myself in both of the books. And then of course I have the experience with the TV show and everything, but seeing the commonalities, especially with what you said about, well, in Queen Sugar, there was a character. You actually gave them your dad's story. Mm -hmm. 
And I was like, I see what she did there. Because <laughs> the people that don't know, tell us about your dad's story, specifically the part where he graduated from high school in Louisiana yeah. and he went to California. Yeah. So my dad, he grew up in a small town in Louisiana and he hated it. Mm-hmm. He saw from a very young age that there was really nothing for him in this town. And so the night of his high school graduation, he packed his bags and he left. He didn't even stick around for like the dance or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he caught a ride to California with a woman from his town who was driving up to Oakland because her husband worked in the shipping in the shipyards and she needed someone to help her drive across the country and help pay for gas. Right. And so my dad got to California by hitching a ride with this woman. He really never looked back. He never lived in Louisiana again after mm-hmm. high school because he saw the West Coast, L.A., as the land of opportunity. He didn't come from farming, but he did come from a rural community and just did not see any opportunity for himself there. So he left. And I gave that story to Charlie's father in Queen Sugar. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I feel like, and as I'm thinking about the TV show, did we ever get to meet her dad on the TV show? Yes. Episode one. Okay. That's why, because I've watched, that's way, way far back in my memory. So far, so far back. But mm-hmm. yes. And Ernest dies in, I think. Ernest. Oh, because I remember who played him. Yes. Yes. Glenn Thurman, I think is his name, is the actor. Yeah. But Ernest is the dad and he passes away, I think at the end of episode one, before Charlie can get down there. He transitions and in the hospital yeah. and Blue and Ralph Angel get to go see him, you know, say, say goodbye. But Charlie misses it. That was that. So yeah. those connections, though, just the show alone, just the Queen Sugar show, that's mm-hmm. that's one conversation. The book is another conversation. Mm-hmm. We Are Each Other's Harvest is another conversation. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to kind of centralize it around the farmers and talk That's a little okay. bit about both books. I'm doing my yeah. best. I, You're I, doing great. I will say that you are certainly invited to talk to me again to unpack either one, if that's mm. okay with you. What we just discussed was your father and his connections yes. to your literature as far as you incorporating his story into it. And I'm thinking about how I was talking with my father And I'm making connections to Mm -hmm. that same concept. Like he said, he went to the military right after high school. I think he might've went to try to get a trade for a minute. And then he just was like, going to the military, definitely don't want to be a farmer. Mm -hmm. Rural town, I'm not staying here. Yeah, People that grow up in these rural environments, depending on how you look at it, it can feel like like a trap. Mm -hmm. It can, because a lot of rural communities have, you know, as people have migrated away, Mm-hmm. They kind of suffered, but also there's also this whole reverse migration question, right? About people moving that, back that's to a, that's the, the South and moving back to maybe not tiny, tiny rural communities if there's really mm-hmm. nothing there, but certainly, you know, maybe around the outskirts of Atlanta, yeah, the, you know, uh-huh. urban centers or, or the outskirts, or because I think that, that people are realizing that there's something valuable about being there. I, I was actually just having a conversation last week with some friends who are talking about going back to their small towns Mm -hmm. where now main street is all boarded up right and buying too long they've Mm -hmm. been gone too long but 
they are now talking about buying buildings in these small towns and rehabbing them, kind of creating their own resurgence. That makes me think about Black Wall Street. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That story is fresh on my mind. Yes. From reading uh, or watching the documentary about that recently. That's very powerful to think Mm -hmm. about that. That's another thing I'm going to have to go and sit with. But I am familiar with this concept of this reverse migration. Mm -hmm. I want to say I read it somewhere in your writing. I just I take in so much. I'm doing my best. That's okay. But I remember reading recently about the migration and how Black people left the South and why they left. We get that. But now understanding how Black people are coming back to some of these spaces. But am I correct in my memory in saying that this reverse migration is related to the pandemic or was this happening before? This was happening before. Okay. This has been happening. I remember in the early days of me writing Queen Sugar probably Mm -hmm. before even that, when I started to hear about people who were packing up and moving from, you know, they were leaving LA, right? Where they'd been born and raised or had lived there for years. And they were, most of these people were, you know, retirement age, but Mm -hmm. they were moving back to their towns in North Carolina or South Carolina or Georgia, wherever. They were moving back. Mm -hmm. A, because it was more affordable, B, because they had, oftentimes they had land in their family, so they had a place to go. But C, it was also because there was a connection there. They they were trying to reconnect. They Mm -hmm. wanted to be around more Black folks. They wanted to be in spaces that felt more welcoming Mm -hmm. in some cases. And so I started to notice this trend, I don't know, over 20 years ago. And I think it has only increased as cities like Atlanta have really drawn people back. And, you know, you've got Durham and North Carolina and these Southern cities that are offer something a little bit different, right? Where you have Black majorities even. So I think it's a trend that has been happening. I think what you may have read recently is Leah Pennyman talks about the returning generation. I believe that's most likely what it was. Yes. Mm -hmm. So this idea of young people in their 20s or 30s who yes. are leaving places like LA or New York or whatever. And mm-hmm. they are going back to the land and connecting with it as a means of building a different kind of community, as a means of addressing. It's very intentional. It's mm-hmm. about building a different framework and reimagining what community looks like, reimagining what capitalism looks like, reimagining what land stewardship looks like. They're doing this through the lens of activism and community. There's something to what you just said, and and I'm glad that you mentioned activism because the truth that I've been happy to recognize about growing your own food is that it is a form of resistance. It is a form of activism. Because I have always resounded with the concept of being an activist. That Mm -hmm. feels like the right thing to do, considering the history of my people. But when I recognize, oh, my superpowers, like growing stuff, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) then I'm like, well, who's going to benefit from that? And then I start to think, oh, you can feed people. Our people are disproportionately dealing with health issues that Mm -hmm. this food that you're growing can address. Yeah. And I love that sense of activism, that intentionality that is being put into place with creating these intentional communities. That gives me something to look forward to. That makes me feel very hopeful. Absolutely. Y'all call me and let me know where it's popping. I want to come. 
There are lots of, yeah. Email me, seriously. Okay. No, I'm talking to the soil. I'm talking oh, you're to talking you, but I'm your, talking your to audience. the soil right, cousins. Right, right. I'm like, y'all, if y'all are in this, let me know. I'm I'm shopping for an intentional mm-hmm. community where I can just me be my whole black ass self mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and not have to be so concerned with all the things that I have to be concerned yeah. with as I'm in the world, as I know it. The concept of returning to the land, you know, I was already excited enough to be able to talk to you, but... <laughs> Now you you've mentioned some things that are like, oh wow, now my imagination is has got something to like really take root on and I'm gonna figure this thing out. We're gonna figure out where we're gonna be. So I want to get into some of my favorite things from We Are Each Other's Harvest. And by my favorite things, favorite facts. There was a lot of facts, y'all, a lot of gems, a lot of really beautiful storytelling poetry and everything. Mm. Well, you did mention why you wrote We Are Each Other's Harvest already, but how long did it take to pull that all together? It was a solid year of me Mm. working, traveling, interviewing people, thinking about gathering all the other elements. It was probably 14 months in all, which is fast. That's That's very fast considering what you went through. Yeah. It was all consuming. It was all consuming for about 14 months. That's beautiful. And I know that as an author, considering your experience with how Queen Sugar came to be published, Mm -hmm. what a difference. Tell the people the difference between what it took to publish We Are Each Other's Harvest versus what it took to publish Queen Sugar. Because you mentioned when you wrote it, and I meant to ask you, but I didn't want to interrupt the flow. I'm like, which time? Mm Y'all, she wrote Queen Sugar how many times? 11, 12, 13. I've lost count <laughs> at this point, but it was, was a lot. Say like four. Gosh. No, no. It was 11 years writing that book. 11 years. Y'all yeah. see what I mean when I say the difference? That's why I like y'all, those of you who can see, who will see whatever video footage there is to see of this, will see my face light up when I'm like, <laughs> it was a big difference now, wasn't it? Big difference. What a difference to have, you know, that validation, I guess, or that relationship already established as a prolific author to be able to have your second book have so much more ease to be able to put that out. If nothing else, as we consider the sheer amount of times that you wrote Queen Sugar and you did finally get it published, and not only did you get it published, but it got the attention of our very own Oprah, as we all know it. And she was like, y'all, we got to make this a TV show, okay? And we all love the TV show, right? But the perseverance, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. That is a, a whole gym. Y'all, it was a lot. <laughs> but you didn't give up. There were many times when I felt like giving up. I'm not going to lie. When I would just think, oh, what am I doing? You know, but I loved it. I still loved yeah. it. What came up for me in just considering that just now is like, I'm thinking about how that story needed to get out of you. You had to just refine it. You know what they say about these analogies about diamonds and, you know, mm-hmm. needs a, a lot of apply the pressure to get the diamonds and stuff. You got a diamond. The pressure was applied <laughs> and you rose to the challenge. So we are all very grateful for that. And I am. Yes, absolutely. So let's go back to we are each other's harvest. So okay. it took you that amount of time. You had to do a lot of traveling. A lot. Yeah. You were a high key or are a high key historian. I am Would a you consider yourself a historian? No. I appreciate. I love history. Yes. I love history. Mm-hmm. I am not a historian. I don't see myself as a historian. What I see is connections between mm-hmm. ideas. I see the story 
where other people might just see an everyday occurrence. Mm. I see the narrative potential. And that is what drives me. I could sit in a library and comb through the archives and gather the facts. But you know what historians do? Historians are able to take raw facts, raw Mm. data, and look at it to tell what is there and also what is not there. Okay. That, that this is my definition. And we they're able it. to draw the story out of, as much out of how things are being framed and what is being presented and the facts and the things that the evidence that they research. And they are able to derive a story out of just numbers and dates and events, right? Okay. I guess I don't want to say I can't, but mm. that is not my area of, of expertise. My area I am better at talking to people and finding commonalities, finding common themes and kind of ideas in people's experience, right? And then if I need to go back and do a little bit of research to contextualize an experience, I can do that. So I'll give you an example. So that resounds with me, but continue. You know what I mean? So like, in the Bluefords story, No Better Life in the book, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this is a story of Mr. Blueford and his three grown sons who farm with him in Nee Smith, North Carolina, right? Okay. I spent a day with them on the, and you may not have gotten to this story yet, so it's okay. okay. But I spent a day with them on their farm in South Carolina. And they were lovely, just such special people. Yeah. And they were sharing their story and telling me, you know, about their generations of farming and how they've been on this land and everything. And I knew that in order to add volume and text, there was, there's plenty of volume and texture in what they were telling me, but in order to frame that so that the reader would really be able to sink their teeth into the experience of being on that land and the significance for this family of being on this land, right? These young men who are in their late 20s to early 40s or late, yeah, they're, they're young. I knew that I had to set their story against what has happened in South Carolina, historically, mm-hmm. going all the way back to the earliest days of the colony, Wow, where the ruling class in South Carolina instituted laws like the governor of South Carolina in 16 whatever instituted a law that prohibited like black people from owning land or from Mm -hmm. slaves having land. I don't remember the exact law, but it's in their chapter. And it was about how this practice of disenfranchisement for black people is not new in South Carolina. This goes all the way back to the origins of the colony, right? Absolutely. Then the Bluford story, which is a contemporary story, takes on additional weight because it is set against these historical facts. Now, would I have known where to go back? It would have taken me forever to dig around in the archives to to tell that original story. Yeah. You see what I mean? That's why I don't think of myself as a historian, because I was not in the archives in South Carolina Public Library, digging around for that history. I get it. I totally get it. And I get it even more now in considering my experience with We We Are Each Other's Harvest because, and that's what I was just about to get to when I mentioned y'all, I didn't forget three of my favorite facts from that I learned Mm. from the book. 
But what I noticed is that I noticed the difference between where you gave the context and where the story was. And it makes perfect sense because it just colored it. You know, it gave the context, it gave the texture. It just like really filled it out. Y'all got to give it to um, Natalie for being (laughs) like, okay, you know, she really put her foot in it. (laughs) She was going to make sure that we got what we needed to get from this incredible work. And so just when you said what you said about that experience that they had between recently and way back, you know, at the beginning of the colonization, that discrimination, that intentional discrimination, it comes up all up and through the book, obviously. It it made me think about the FSA. And the thing that I wrote down, because, you know, I love your language, you wrote down the swinging door. Mm. I remember the swinging door. There was a farmer who described his experience with getting a loan and how they said, okay, he goes in September. He knows what he needs to do. They say, come back in November. We'll have your money. As far as this loan goes, come back. Oh, you didn't bring this document. Yeah. And then they got to go ask so-and-so and then they got to figure out and then it's, it seems like it should be a simple process. They yes. were told it was a simple process. Yes, I know. Yeah. But when they get into it, yeah, that's the swinging door. Yes, that was the swinging door. Yes, that is right. That's the story of Stanley Hughes. That was part of his story. His, his wife, Linda Leach, probably told that story. But also yeah. the Nelsons have a similar story mm-hmm. where they keep going back to the USDA, their local USDA office. And rather than the agents in these offices giving these Black farmers all the information that they need so that they can apply for the loans, they're parsing this information out in dribs and drabs, right? In order to yeah. keep these farmers on the hook. And it's just infuriating because you you realize how much time these people wasted, right? Yeah. Going back, thinking that they're prepared, thinking that they have all the information that they need for their applications or for their loans, and then being turned around and sent home to dig up one little scrap of paper or, or just the withholding nature of some of these USDA agents where they withhold information from these farmers to prevent them from succeeding. And that, yeah. that happened time and time again. That, that was it's, part of the story of Ashley Armstrong and her father, yeah. right? Who yeah. went bankrupt recently after one of the big storms in Louisiana, not because they didn't know how to farm, but because the USDA agent did not tell them, did not give them the manual Literally, like the physical manual for the process of doing something. And so they were disqualified Mm. when they applied for crop insurance because they didn't do it right. How would they have known how to do it right if you don't give them the manual for it? And that that is that swinging door metaphor. The swinging door metaphor, right? And that swinging door metaphor is just an example of the overall pettiness of the way that the racism and the oppression and all that type of the, all these mm-hmm. tactics are, you know, put upon us. Yeah. And it's frustrating. It's, it's a lot of things, but it's not yeah. fun. Right. But it's similar tactics with when black people started voting. Yes. Oh you my know? God. Well, we're seeing that now, right? I mean, we're seeing. Yes. Now. Still now. We're seeing that now. I'm know? thinking about the jar of jelly beans. Yes. The bubbles in the bottle of soap. You got to right? guess how many, I didn't even know that they had people counting bubbles in the bottle. Oh yeah. But 
Oh yeah, that was one of the voting questions. Oh, how many how many bubbles are far so? <laughs> I can't take it. <laughs> All right, let's keep going. Let's keep I going because I, I you know what how the saying goes to be relatively woke as a black person in this country. Yeah. <laughs> it can be very frustrating. Yeah. But okay, look. So some of my favorite things right quick, right? Because so many facts came up, but the thing that was came up with Leah, she talked about how Cleopatra was a huge proponent for Burma composting. Mm. Mm-hmm. Y'all go read the book. I'm not going we're not going to discuss that. Y'all go read the <laughs> book now. And Stephen Slade Mm-hmm. And his innovation in mm-hmm. the way that we know tobacco today and creating, well, kind of accidentally yes. coming upon this innovation. The curing of, techniques. Curing technique of flu-cured yeah. tobacco. That's F-L-U-E. Y'all go look into that. But my favorite, and we can just close on this, is the innovation of farming equipment. Mm-hmm. And I love that the most because... There was an, oh my God, this was, you wrote Queen Sugar before you wrote this, Mm -hmm. but I remember the part about how Prosper fashioned a tool to create a tiller. Mm -hmm. Was that the the machine? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I'm reading what I read about how Black people just because of all the bullshit with not being able to get the funding had to like, that's probably related to the term nigger rigging. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> yeah. Had to rig up some farming yes. equipment yes. that turned out to be adopted by not just white farmers, but these corporations saw the value in. Mm-hmm. So the innovation of the farming equipment that we know of that people, the John Deere, I'm gonna call, mm-hmm. I'm gonna call a name out, <laughs> <laughs> would not be this multi-billion-dollar corporation if it were not for the innovation of our people having to do the best that they could with what they had. Yeah, there are all kinds of examples like that. I remember one of the tobacco farmers, maybe it was Stanley, maybe it was, uh, a couple of them mentioned this to me, like sitting on a an implement, this farm implement that you attach to the back of a tractor mm-hmm. and it's low to the ground so that you can sit there and you can plant like the tobacco plugs, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this was something that they invented as a way of, Planting tobacco. Yeah. We got to know our history. We just got to know. Yeah. That is amazing. I know you don't consider yourself to be a historian. You're a storyteller. But how does someone know that they're a storyteller? Or if you would like, Uh how would you encourage someone who maybe has just recognized their ability to be one or, you Mm -hmm. know, it's just... Mm -hmm. Wanting to tell stories, wanting yeah. to make these connections. Because what you were saying about storytelling versus being a historian, that really resounded me with me because that is legit my process. I'm mm. like, let me find out about the people. I want to know the facts, but I really want to understand it from a human point of view. I think, first of all, you, you have to be curious, right? Mm. If mm. you're not curious about people, if you're not curious about the way the world works, if, and some people aren't right? Some people are not curious. Mm. I'm always like, how did that happen? Why I lead with my curiosity. I feel like I've said that on the show before, Yes, which, you know, if I sound like a little off, no, 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 no. It's because like, I don't, uh, this is not highly scripted. This is Mm -hmm. curiosity driven. Yes. Yes. But curiosity, yes. Curiosity, I think is number one. I think you have to be stubborn because you have to love the process 
you can't just love the outcome. You have to love the process of storytelling, however that comes to you, whether that's in film, whether that's writing a book, whether that is, you know, dance, whether that is visual art, whatever your medium is, you have to be stubborn. You have to be persistent. You have to be patient with yourself and with the process because it doesn't just happen overnight, right? It doesn't. It's a marathon. Yes. And if you, and if you go into this expecting it to be overnight, you're going to be discouraged and you're going to give up. So you have Mm. to know that this is a process. You are on a journey. You are asking questions and you are following that wherever it's going to take you. Yeah. So I think there's that. I think you have to be okay with yourself meaning you have to enjoy spending time with yourself and in your own thoughts and in your mind and in your imagination. If you're a person who constantly needs to, you can't worry about what the rest of the world is doing. So there's that. So like, if you're somebody who always has to be at the party, Oh, that's that. you know, if you're haunted by FOMO, chances are, and I love to be with people, but I also need to step away from people and allow myself to think and process. Right. Mm-hmm. I can't be so concerned with like being at whatever the new hot thing is because then I'm always chasing the thing, right? Oh. I have to be okay stepping away from the thing so yes. that I can make sense of the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Which means that sometimes I miss out. Sometimes I'm not in the middle. I'm not in the mix all the time yeah. because I have to have quiet. I have to step away in order to make sense of what I'm observing. So there's that. And I think you have to be disciplined. You have to be willing to show up whether you feel like showing up or not. And I think that that goes for, again, any artistic practice, which is all storytelling is, you have to be committed to it no matter what. There are many days when I get up and I'm like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to write about or, oh God, I got to go back to that chapter that's not working or, oh, I've got to get in there and I've got to be willing to sit. I've got to be willing to face the blank page. I've got to be willing to get in. I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine this morning and we were on the phone and we were writing together. She's like, I really don't feel like writing today. And I'm like, it's a beautiful day here. I really would love to be outside because I know people are having fun. No, I have to be here at the desk. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have to be okay with that. Curiosity, yeah. discipline. That's it. People don't generally, they don't want to be told, well, you got to be disciplined. People be like, I just want to be free. I want to have a good time. Mm, no. but what I wrote on my, you know, my little message board, you know, where you put the letters up there. At first it said, bloom where you're planted. That was up there for like six my months. Mo- uh, I, yes, that's it. a family saying of my parents too. Oh, beautiful. And so I recently, a few weeks ago, changed it to, I get to do what I got to do. Mm, I love that. It's like the framing of it. It's like, yeah, there's obligations, but you get, yes. there's a privilege and you even have the ability to, mm, to even good. consider them, to even yes. get to, mm. go ahead and write it down. You know, I am I, writing that down. I want to be able to, to, to influence you as well. <laughs> I got, okay. I get to do what I got to do. That's I'm going to send you a picture of my, okay. uh, my board. That'll be cute. But Natalie, thank you so much. This is a great way to just close it on out. That was beautiful. Everything that you stated, because I just said, Hey, what advice do you have for storytellers or how Mm. do you know you're a storyteller? And that was gems. That was Mm. just bars. Okay. When you you ready to get on the (laughs) mixtape, we'll get it popping. So 
if you have any talks, lectures, panels coming up, let us know. Um, this is the time when you tell us how we can support you and, and keep up with you. This is a question that I asked Veronda Montgomery, who wrote Lessons from Plants. And I was asking her, what is the way that you prefer people buy your books? Is there like a preferred mm. vendor or should they, yeah. you know, go to your website? What is, is there a preference there? My preference is, I mean, of course, if you can buy it from a black bookstore, great. A black bookstore would be first an independent bookstore. If you can't find a black bookstore in your, in your area, then an indie bookstore for sure. Boom. There is a black bookstore in Brooklyn that I know does shipping. Somebody told me about it. I feel like uh, I've heard of that bookshop. Yes, from Melanie at the Black Farmer Fund. And their website is bmbrooklyn.com. Beautiful. Okay, well, I will absolutely make sure that I take note of that. Y'all get the book. She worked really hard on it, like, (laughs) but she didn't give up. All the more reason to buy it. And we are each other's harvest. What else would you say to encourage us to to keep up support? You know, in this moment, given what Black farmers are facing, Mm -hmm. With this pushback against the Black Farmer Relief, I would say if you have any skills and you want to volunteer, reach out to the National Black Food and Justice Alliance, Dara Cooper's organization, and volunteer. Yes. If you have any skills, social media, writing, whatever, Mm -hmm. if you're willing to make phone calls, they had a call yesterday with allies and, and comrades about helping to fight this fight. I would send people their way. Thank you so much once again, Natalie, for joining us. I want to wish you love, light, and soil. Thank you, thank you. Good luck. 